once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely, extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames. I felt my style. I felt my style and skills. I only do so. From a distance. Welcome back to the Chess Underground. It is December 2021, and I have decided to dedicate this episode, take a break from our um, streamer theme this year, and dedicate this episode to a dear friend, FIDE master Albert Chow, um, who recently passed away, not from COVID, uh, but from cancer. And Albert uh, was a fellow chess player, a fellow coach, um, a fellow chess writer, a chess author, and as I mentioned, a good friend. You'll hear in this episode um, a few stories shared by those who knew Albert best and longest and met him on the chessboard at tournaments or just out in the world. And some of the stories that they will share, I myself uh, personally was present for or had heard about or knew about. I will admit that it is a great regret. I never brought Albert on the show with me. He was on my list of people who I would love to record and sit down and have a conversation with. He just had a certain way of speaking and communicating, which was both very precise, um, very delicate, very nuanced, and above all, I would say, very generous. He was always willing to share uh, whatever he had to share with you in a very direct way and open way, including chess analysis. I remember the very first time I personally met Albert was around 20 years ago. And we were playing in a tournament at, uh, I believe it was Juliet Junior College, if I remember correctly, on the south, south, south of Chicago. And... I was only about an 1800 rated at the time. And of course I lost Albert. He was a very strong player and he was gracious enough to immediately offer to review the game with me. We went and we sat out in the commons area and we had a nice long conversation, uh, which included some analysis and comments about chess and also just thoughts about the world and what was happening at the time. Um, and that was, that was who Albert was. He was always willing to share a conversation, share some thoughts, and above all else, uh, share a game of chess. Albert, uh, through the years, uh, we, we grew to know each other, to know each other quite well. And I remember one year, um, I ran a, a yearly chess camp down in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. We had about 50 to 60 kids, usually in that range. 
And I would always invite down a few master coaches from the Chicago area. Uh, as it happened, in central Illinois, if you're, if you're nearby or you know about it, there aren't very many uh, high-rated players. So um, we sort of had to import coaches down for our camp. And I imported Albert down from Chicago one summer. And uh, he stayed uh, with me during that time. Uh, he was always uh, happy to crash on a couch or a futon or the floor if need be. Um, he really, truly loved chess and was willing to sort of uh, go out of his way to uh, get involved in chess as best he could and um, give his knowledge on to others, whether it be through a game or through commentary. He was the Illinois Chess Bulletin games editor for a very long time uh, or what, whatever the case may be. And this particular camp that we ran was an all-day affair. You know, it was 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. of pretty much nonstop chess. We had a really, like, chess-heavy, chess-intensive curriculum. Uh, we did have some fun and games. We had some downtime. But for the most part, you know, especially for our imported coaches, the coaches we brought down um, from Chicago, from faraway places, we wanted to get our best players as much time with those coaches as we could. So... Um, Albert was busy with chess all day. And I remember he was always the first coach to review a game with a kid after their, after their tournament game was over at camp. And he would stay the latest uh, afterwards and, and happily talk about an opening variation or a puzzle with any of the campers. And, you know, these were really, uh, you know, as a coach at the camp myself, these were really long days that were very chess intensive. And I remember we'd get back to my apartment after camp and... You know, as I was like putting stuff away and doing this and doing that, some of the other coaches usually came over and wanted to play a game or two. Uh, but Albert, the first thing he would do when he'd walk in is he'd go and find a chessboard and pull out of his pocket some of the uh, uh, notation sheets or score sheets that he had kept from his, his group of kids that he was coaching that day and start looking at some of the games and describing them to us and, you know, narrating what had happened in the game and um, just really... Uh, had a passion for that sort of thing. And he had, he, he, he had that same passion for pretty much everything. That same trip, I remember, Albert uh, discovered uh, my PlayStation 4 and really became enamored with a particular game uh, that uh, took place in outer space. And as he played the game, <laughs> those who knew Albert well can, can hear his voice doing this, but he would narrate each step that he was going to take and approached it almost like, you know, I, I want to say almost like an analysis of a position. You know, he would carefully scope out each room of the space station as his character went through it and inspect each thing, you know. Um, of course, as aliens were hopping out from all corners trying to uh, do whatever aliens do in a video game. Um, and Albert would just carefully, you know, almost like he was describing a chess position. And it's okay, now I will walk over here and see what is behind this door. And perhaps we will need to um, find more ammunition, that sort of thing. It was really uh, uh, typical of, of his uh, style, I guess I would say, um, which he brought with him wherever he went. And that was one of the, the beautiful things about Albert, which, again, you'll hear in some of the other stories, too, is he was um, very true to himself and very true to his purpose. And uh, whether, whether it was 
ordering lunch or dissecting <laughs> uh, some, some deep lines of the uh, Nimzu Indian defense. So um, without further ado, I'll let uh, my guests this, this month, uh, who are all here to tell stories about Albert, I'll let them take over and uh, honor his memory. Um, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy hearing about uh, my good friend um, and fellow chess master, FIDE master, Albert Chow. Uh, we'll get back to our normal business next month. I wish some of the top players in the world Here's National Tournament Director Glenn Panner on Albert Chow. Thanks, Pete. Um, I had the good fortune of being friends with Albert for over 30 years. Uh, since I was a kid and growing up, and uh, during that point, uh, Albert was, uh, was, a, was one of the strongest players, you know, probably even in a larger area than even the Midwest. Uh, his peak rating was well uh, in the upper 2400s. He tied for first place at a U.S. Open. And I've never met anyone that loved the game nearly as much as Albert did. Albert uh, was a purist in every sense of the word. When I would run tournaments and I would collect score sheets, after the tournament ended, I wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with those score sheets. But Albert would uh, always ask for them because he wanted them. He thought they were treasures and he wanted to enter them in. And no one paid better detail to uh to chess than, than Albert did. In fact, um, one story that, that comes to mind, uh, I, I uh, ran a tournament uh, a number of years ago called the Billy Coleus Memorial after another talented Midwest player that left us way too soon, uh, who was also a contemporary of Albert's. And Albert um, uh, was kind enough to play in the event. And uh, in fact, uh, all of the uh, Coleus Memorials I ran, he played in them. And in this one, uh, he wound up playing a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Pete, uh, Len Weber. And Len had a terrible record against Albert. Albert just had his number. And Len came up with a creative uh, tactic to play against Albert. Albert was really tough to prepare for because he played everything. Um, but Len had this idea, which was Albert paid so close attention to every part of the game that he was going to start. Uh, he was he was going to try and throw Albert off uh, by doing something rather, I thought, hilarious, uh, which was uh, just taking descriptive notation. And Albert's notation himself was just, uh, you know, if if you were a tournament director and you got called to a board needing to verify notation, you were hoping Albert was the opponent because his penmanship was just meticulous. It was perfect. And Len, his handwriting was excellent as well. So they were playing this game. And Len, you know, started, you know, made his move and, and wrote, you know, P, K, 4. And continued from there, writing the entire game in descriptive notation. And I happened to be walking by the board right after Len made a move early in the game, maybe his third or fourth move. Uh, and after knight to king bishop three or something like along those lines and albert was fixated by len writing down the moves like this and every time len made a move and then started to write down the notation albert's eyes would divert away from the board and stare at the at the notation as if you know he was trying to 
to reconcile in his mind, hey, was was I being back to the 50s or something? And, and all we're using is descriptive <laughs> notation. And he paid so much attention uh, on that that uh, Len got a better position and wound up drawing the game against Albert. And when it came time for the postmortem, which was rare for Albert to not care as much about the game as he just wanted to ask about the descriptive notation. He was so entranced by it. It was, uh, it was hilarious. Uh, so Len's tactic absolutely, absolutely worked. And that was kind of the level of, of attention that Albert put into everything. Um, you know, he, he, he just loved the game so much that um, he, he once told me a different, you know, while we were planning another Coleus Memorial, that he wanted uh, the time control to be game three hours. Now, Albert was a very slow player, and he loved taking all of his time, and he made the argument, why should we go game 40, uh, or uh, why should we go 40 moves in two hours with sudden death 60 and create this artificial crisis point at move 40? If we want to truly create our, our most beautiful chess, we should be able to use the entire three hours whatever way we want to as players. And I thought, wow, I've never heard that type of an argument before. Yeah, it seems Absolutely. pretty reasonable. Yeah. yeah, let's try it. What, you know, what could go wrong? Um, and, uh, you know, we did have some players who were very excited about that time control. Uh, Andrew Karklins, namely. And uh, Albert was also excited to try it. And that was great for a few rounds until... Uh, Albert, uh, wasn't analyzing his position all that, all that well. Um, and you know, different people, uh, players have different methods. Uh, if, if they don't see the board well, sometimes they need to, you know, get a bite to eat or a drink of water, walk around the room a little bit. Uh, Albert's approach showed the, um, uh, kind of the, the problem of using game three hours, which was he decided to take a nap at the board. Intentionally. <laughs> I asked him about it afterwards. He says, well, I'm a light sleeper. You know, I, I knew I'd only uh, sleep for 15, 20 minutes. And when I'd open my eyes, I'd have a fresh perspective on the game. And uh, sure enough, he did. Uh, he beat uh, another national master that game uh, that happened, who was absolutely furious about it. Uh, but, and, and that was the last time I ever ran a game three-hour event. Uh, so first and last, first and last, but, uh, Albert was known for taking, uh, his time and, and, uh, quite often flagging. Um, he, uh, he was kind of funny when it came to that. Uh, I, he had one tournament where I saw him flag, I want to say three games in a row. Um, of course, as, as the arbiter of that event, I, I got blamed for that by Albert, but, uh, that was okay. It was, it was kind of a, uh, you know, a badge of honor. Um, we, uh, we even paid tribute to that at, at a different version of the Coleus Memorial by making a, uh, a special Chow edition clock. I'm not sure, Pete, if you remember that. Uh, I do. Is this, is this the famous Chownos? This is the Chownos. Um, we, we basically uh, decided for fun, uh, and obviously it wasn't a working clock, but we decided to make a, uh, uh, a double-sided uh, 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 sundial shaped like a, a chess clock and uh, even even had a, a little note taped to it saying that uh, 
to have to uh, to have delay, please adjust the position of the clock one degree for a five second delay, something along those lines. <laughs> and uh, we weren't sure how Albert was going to receive this. And he picked up the uh, the Chownos and he studied it very closely for what seemed to be forever. It might have only been two minutes, but when he's holding this thing up in the air and trying to figure out how it works and then finally came to the conclusion, oh, this is a play on Kronos. This is, this is a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And he goes, oh, that's funny. I like it. And uh, of course, when he, when he spoke to you like that, it was, uh, you know, as often uh, he would use both your first and your, and your last name, uh, you know, Glenn Panner. I think this is a really amusing joke. And, and he was, uh, he had such a great way of speaking. <laughs> yes, I can hear, I can hear him. I can hear his voice saying that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fantastic. But, um, you know, I think anyone that, that ever played chess in Chicago over the last, you know, few decades, uh, who's come across Albert should have, have a great story because he is that much of a character. Um, you know, he, uh, he was a big participant in the first Norm tournament that uh, I organized along with uh, the late Savon Meradian. And Pete, I think you played in that tournament too, didn't you? Uh, is, is this the event at the Purple Hotel? Is it, that correct? It was, it was at the Purple Hotel. Okay. Um, I think which which was actually purple for the record. It was. Uh, it wasn't very long lived after that event. But it was fun. The tournament was notable. Uh, uh, ben Feingold got his second uh, Grandmaster Norma of that event. Uh, Jan Vanemortel got his third I Am Norm and you know became an I Am uh, from that event. So we even generated a couple of norms from it. And Albert didn't have uh, the greatest tournament. That was that was the one where he uh, he started off at least 0-4, maybe 0-5. And, and uh, most of those were losses on time. And uh, there were a couple of grandmasters. Uh, Pete, you can tell me if, uh, if if I can say the names or not, or if I need to protect the innocent. I, I think we can disclose the the players. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, Grandmaster Jesse Cry, who uh, who had lived in Chicago in the Chicago area for a while, uh, knew of Albert's reputation for going out clubbing uh, during the evenings. Albert lived in the uh, Wrigleyville area of Chicago, which um, you know, uh, for those of you outside of Chicago, um, it's it's where uh, uh, Wrigley Field is where the Cubs play. It's a very lively uh, neighborhood filled with lots of uh, bars and restaurants. And uh, Albert uh, was very frequent to uh, to go to some of those places at uh, during the evenings. And Jesse knew of of uh, Albert's uh, enjoyment of these places, and. Uh, there's another grandmaster in town who, who at the time was, you know, hey, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's go out. Uh, that grandmaster, uh, Varakobian, um, you know, went up to Albert and said, Albert, could you show us around? Could you take us to some of your favorite places? Can you, you know, he want, they wanted to be hooked up with some fun nightlife. And uh, so Albert initially agreed and then realized uh, shortly before we were to leave that uh, VAR was his opponent the next game. So he, he had this moral crisis on his hand, which was he didn't think it was proper to break bread with, with his enemy for the next day. Uh, 
and he, uh, without saying a word, he, he just kind of left. And uh, so we're all looking around for him because uh, all of us wanted to go and, and uh, you know, see what kind of craziness was going to happen. Um, and uh, we wound up calling up, you know, Albert. And, uh, you know, he, he, you know, was very apologetic, but Glenn, I'm, Glenn Penner, I'm very sorry, but I'm playing Grandmaster Ocopian in the morning. Therefore, it, it would be completely improper for, you know, to socialize with him the night before the, you know, our game. And uh, let's just say our, our uh, Grandmaster visitors weren't real pleased with that answer. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, where, uh, you know, at, at the time, I think, uh, you know, Akobian might have considered giving a, uh, uh, a friendly draw afterwards. Uh, you know, uh, to get Albert on the scoreboard. Uh, his, uh, I believe his response was something along the lines of uh, making sure he, he kicked Albert's butt the next day, uh, which he did. But, uh, <laughs> um, but he maintained the purity of the competition. He, he maintained the purity and uh, he got his, uh, Albert did get on the scoreboard uh, around later, actually beating, uh, you know, Jesse Cry. Um, you know, in a game where Jesse was lost by move 20, but since Albert had gotten down under a minute or flagged in all five or six of his games by that point, he didn't want to resign just because there was this real serious possibility Albert would lock up and flag. So he had to play in this horrible position, you know, not only being a rook down, but, you know, going to be mated in, in several moves, just hoping that you know, Albert might freeze up again and, and, and lose on time. And, you know, every time someone would walk to the board and look over at Jesse and smile and Jesse would kind of turn a little bit red and uh, shrug his shoulders like, I got to see if he's going to flag, right? And uh, But Albert uh, held it together and, uh, and, and put uh, Brandmaster Cry out of his misery uh, before, uh, before his time expired. So that was, uh, you know, at least he, he got the benefit of that, so. Uh, but you know, just um, such a such a noble player. Such you know, uh, Albert uh, was a historian of the game, and I I think that he's going to be remembered around you know the Chicago area for a very long time as well. Should be. Here is National Master Ken Wallach on Albert Chow. He was one of the. The, the best players that I knew, and I modeled my play after him to some extent, was just really into solid positional chess. And no one worked harder than Al at a chessboard. I mean, he would just grind and calculate, and you could sense the effort when he was playing chess. Yeah, I always found that to be the case uh, when I was his opponent, too. <laughs> I was on the the, the short end of the stick a few times against Albert. Oh, yeah. I mean, I while I have beaten him two or three times in my life, I have lost 20 to 30 times to him. And uh, the more recent, more recently, our, most of our games have been draws. Because I look at drawing El Chow as a win for me. It's funny. Uh, um, you're not the first person I've heard say that. <laughs> really? Yes. 
Yes, um, just to, you know, to survive against him almost felt like a win. Yeah, just, I mean, the work he put into it and his opening prep was so good as well. He could play so many different openings that I remember, like, especially in Round Robins, like the Billy Clias Memorial, when I knew I would be playing him, then, you know, I just struggled to find something against him to pierce that armor. And uh, I, I, I had a marginal amount of success. I mean, I remember waking up at like 5 a.m. when I'd have to play him for a round in the Billy Clias Memorial and and, and watching a, a Foxy Chess Openings video on, I think it's like the Archangel variation of the Roy Lopez and playing one Blitz game, losing it, and then saying, I'm ready. And, <laughs> and I played Albert and, and I'm fortunate to have fought to a draw. And after that, he complimented me on, on my opening and I didn't have the heart to tell him that I had just learned it this morning. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned you guys are pretty much the same age and, and yeah. you, you met in, in, he, in high school. Is that right? Yeah. I, in, in high school, I just was obsessed with chess. And every Monday night, I, I would go to the Northwestern University Chess Club. And that's where I, I, I ran into Al Chow sometimes um, in high school playing on their team. And he was, he was a force and he, you know, he, he played the part. He was long hair and, and dressed in black usually. I mean, it was, it was really cool. And, um, and he, um, he, he, his dropping out of high school, I was uh, the unlikely beneficiary of that in a weird way. I mean, clearly he was the best high school player of 1980, 81. Um, but he dropped out to focus on chess. I mean, here's a guy who knew what he wanted to do and he did it. I had no clue what I wanted to do, but he dropped out. So that paved the way for me, weirdly enough, to, to pull the upset. And I, I was the Illinois IHSA high school champion uh, for 81 and 82, uh, probably because El Chow decided not to do it. Did he just go and play like open events, professional events? He played open and professional. He 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 found uh, he had some distasteful uh, incidents in high school chess. I think there's a famous incident with Chris Slupik that you've probably heard about, but um, it, it it wasn't his thing. And and the you know he he was a uh, he was he played by the rules, and he didn't like people bending the rules or knocking pieces down in time pressure. I mean, that, that got to him. And he pursued his dream and played chess professionally. He wrote and taught and played. And uh, he was, he, he, he pursued the dream. It seemed like he almost had like a, a reverence for, for the, the, not just the rules, but almost like the conduct of the game. Yeah. He, and, and, and like in Silman's, um, imbalances of chess, you know, it, he valued material and he valued, um, pawn structure and, um, he, he had a different value than some of the other players like Kevin Batchelor, who, and, you know, Kevin Batchelor would put initiative on the very top, not where, and Chow would value material. I think at the very top. And so mm -hmm. um, I think Chow saw Kevin play and said, you play like a caveman. And then 
nickname stuck, but <laughs> but he um, he did. He had so so Albert is responsible for cave mansions. Yes, Albert. Wow. Saw. Yeah, you could. You okay. should ask Kevin about it. Kevin's a, a wonderful storyteller, and will tell you the story. But yeah, he said you play like a caveman, and the name stuck. It, you know, and because because you know, I used to say that you know, Chow that that when I play Kevin, he would bocklerize the position where he would sack wildly, where no one knows what's going on, but Kevin and Chow was simple and crisp. You know, when you were playing Kevin, he he would. He would beat you, and and you wouldn't understand the tactics. With Chow, it was a slow agony where he would outplay you. I remember I played him round seven in the U.S. Open 1994. That's the one that Albert Chow won it all, and and was was champ was co champion of the U.S. Open. And I played him in round seven. We both had the exact same store, score. I'm sorry, round ten. I played Albert Chow, and I was white, and um, he just positionally crushed me. I mean, I was white too. And he just, uh, I thought I'd do a cattle and he played B5, a huge queen side attack. And, and I, it was a slow motion defeat. I, I mean, I was just, I felt I was dead from, from move 10 and it dragged on a bit until he finally beat me. And then, you know, after the game's over, he pointed out a tactic, a rook sacrifice I missed that that looked like it, it would be very good for me. And it was cool of him to point that out. Of course, I had no clue after the game that I had missed a rook sacrifice. Yeah, it seems like Albert almost had an otherworldly understanding of certain positions. I remember he just flat out refuted my Schliemann opening. <laughs> just like really? in like a day's worth of preparation. Uh, I mean, it was like I could never play it again after facing him. Yeah, I remember him um, just grinding people down with with white, with a minority attack, and, and he just loved those those games where where he could, he could understand what was happening, right. and and he had the edge, and you know if he didn't understand, he he, he would just try his hardest. Like uh, I remember sitting next to him in one game, and he. Um, and my game was pretty boring, but I love sitting next to someone who's playing an exciting game of chess because then I can vicariously be playing an exciting game of chess. So I'm sitting next to Albert Chow and it looked really complicated. I didn't know what was going on. And then I noticed Al Chow is sleeping at the board. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> and I'm like, should I, you know, he, uh, he's a friend of mine. Should I like kick him under the table to wake him up? Or I go to Glenn Panner, the tournament director, I'm like, what? this is like FIDE rated too. I think I'm like, what's the rules about sleeping? He said, as long as he doesn't snore and disturb people, you let him be. Uh, and so I sit down and I'm like nervously <laughs> watching him. It must've been like 15 or 20 minutes he's out. And, and I, I was ethically torn. Do you wake him up to help him? Or do you mind your own business? I, I don't know what the right thing I should have done, but I did nothing. And then he woke up naturally 15 or 20 minutes later and he he beat his opponent and then after the game i'm like albert did you know you were sleeping and 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 albert says yes i was calculating and i just couldn't see it so i thought i would take a brief nap to clear my head and and he did and i I don't know whether he was making that up and he just fell asleep or or if it's truth i think it was the truth that he purposely fell asleep to clear his head. I mean, I mean, we had a long time control, but 
it was just weird to take 15 or 20 minutes and sleep and clear your head. But he won, so that was very cool. Yeah, honestly, with with Albert, anything he told you, I, I just sort of believed that that was what he was doing, you know? Like, if he said something, that's probably was the case. Yeah. I mean, he was precise, too. Like, he would call you your first name and your last name. You know, mm-hmm. Ken Wallach. You know, the, he was... And and his handwriting was was very blocular and very neat. He was in control. He's yeah. a precise person. You you saw what you got with Albert. You know, you mentioned the um, the the look or like the impact he had at the board of like the long hair, wearing all black. Even sometimes, uh, I remember he would wear uh, like a poker player almost. He would wear sunglasses to yes, to his game. yes, reflected to reflective too sometimes right almost like he was taking a page out of was it Korchnoid's handbook right who wore the sunglasses to reflect uh at some kind of hypnotist yes in the in the front row (laughs) exactly i was was certainly not trying to hypnotize him but yeah just to keep him in the world of chess right you know to maybe just two things come to mind um one was he, he was really caring. I mean, I, I was in one of those Bill Goichberg tournaments where I entered in one, and then I got a, a herniated disc, which was very painful. And it, it you know, something in my back or something that, that affected, and I felt that I wouldn't be able to concentrate. So I went to the tournament to withdraw, and, and El Chao, I bumped into him. He's like, why aren't you playing? What's happening? And I, I told him I was, I currently had a herniated disc and he was, he was very caring. He's suggesting treatments. He's saying, yeah, because when you're playing chess, you're leaning over for hours and that's not the greatest thing for your back and you got to take care of yourself. And, you know, I, I just <laughs> thought it was, it was wonderful of him to, yeah. to take such a, a care and, and, you know, why I was, um, why I was withdrawing from the tournament. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That, that definitely sounds like, uh, sounds like Albert. Yeah. And there is another thing, but it slipped my mind temporarily. Um, oh yeah. Um, I, my interactions with, um, Al Chow have, were predominantly over the chessboard or at chess tournaments. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one day, um, me and my brother, as a matter of fact, we went downtown to a bar to listen to uh, some band that was playing. And, uh, and coincidentally, Albert Chow, I liked <laughs> music too. And it was like someone I normally see over the chessboard. And, and I just remember uh, me and my brother and Albert Chow were kind of swaying and dancing to the music, listening to, this, listening to a band in a bar. And it was just a, a cool memory. Uh, just hanging out um, away from battle with that, with El Chow that night. How was he different off, or was he different? Was he pretty much the same when he sort he, of was out he, of that fighting battle chessboard? Yeah, you know, he was. He was the same. I mean, he was. Uh, I mean, generally, you know, he he was pleasant. He could be intense over the board, especially when rules or time pressure or something was there. But but you know, there were. He was intense and. And he cared about the game. He had respect for the game. You know, it's like, it reminds me of my early days playing tennis, where I had to play for score because 
how do you just hit the ball around and, you know, I'm not going to skin my knee if we're not keeping score. And, and, and right. Chess Albert Chow is always keeping score and always willing to skin his knee. But so away in the, you know, seeing him in a pure social non-chess setting, you know, he's just another cool guy enjoying life. Well, Ken, thanks so much for your willingness to uh, sit down with me and share some of your memories and recollections of Albert. I know a lot of us miss him and, uh, and I appreciate you um, sharing some of your past with us. Well, thank you very much and, and good luck with, uh, with uh, your tribute and I'd love to listen to it when it's ready. That sounds great. Thanks, Ken. Here's former ICA president Bill Brock on Albert Chow. It was at the 1979 U.S. Open. Albert, so I was a student at University of Illinois. So I, I was six years older than Albert, born in 58. Uh, Albert was still at Lane Tech, and, and he was just a kid. Uh, so I, I think he was 14 or 15 at the time. And he won the Class B prize at the 1979 U.S. Open. And it, it was clear... It, 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 it was not clear how strong it was going to be, but it was clear that, that already that he, this kid was a future master. The one vivid memory I have of 1979 really doesn't have too much to do with, with Albert, but somehow uh, national master David Quinn, who, whom I knew from MIT, was visiting Chicago. I don't think he was playing in the event. Albert was in the car. I was in the back seat. Uh, behind David, and the other person in the car was either National Master Fred Ryan or National Master Vince Barry. My my memory fails me on that point. It was probably Fred. And we got we 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 got stopped on Rush Street because because David uh, David for some reason was driving a car with no plates. So I told David, yes sir, no sir, we got a ticket. Okay, that that has nothing to do with Albert. The 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 first vivid memory I have of him as a chess player was uh, uh, circa 1980. Uh, You may may hear stories, uh, people like David Rubin could tell you about this story, uh, 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 and uh, people like Diam Shabazz could tell you about this story. There was a fiasco where Albert got jobbed uh, Albert and the Niles North, uh, not the Niles, Albert and the Lane Tech High School team got jobbed out of first pl- first prize uh, at the uh, 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 Illinois High School Championships uh, due to a really really bad decision, and I think this contributed to Albert's decision to drop out of out of high school and follow in the steps of Bobby Fisher. And I, I, I remember vividly arguing with Albert in the No Exit Cafe, urging him to stay in school. But it was, it was always clear that, you know, that, that to, to him, already from this early age, that chess was going to be his life. And uh, like his, his total commitment to the game and, and the total, his total love of the game uh, uh, <laughs> we're, we're already apparent, and and here we're talking about 1980 or 1981. I'm I, I'm not sure exactly when. 
Uh, the, the other thing I remember vividly from this period, there were, there was, uh, there was, uh, uh, there was one passion that Albert had. Probably, it, it may have even rivaled chess, uh, and, and and that is people. Uh, he 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 was a very sociable person. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't call him a pickup artist, but but like he had he he, uh, he had a way of charming women that that he that he just met, and. Uh, had a very very active social life. I remember, I, I remember uh, when the when the uh, when the uh, master challenge was was at the Oak Park Chess Club, and we were taking he and I were taking the uh, uh, the uh, the train back and back into the city. He saw an attractive woman on the other tracks, walked over, got his phone number, got back with a smile on his face. Mission accomplished. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, at, at the same time, uh, uh, I, he didn't have a devil may care attitude. Alec. he was totally, uh, his, his absolute dedication to chess and to total chess, uh, searching for truth rather than the sporting result. The Magnus Carlsen, you know, a point is a point is a point attitude was totally foreign to Albert. He was, he was, he had the scientific approach to the game. And the only one I can compare him to, and the people that I've known, the only other person who, who I, who I know has a similar attitude was, was, uh, was Andrew Carklitz. Would you consider Al more, more of an artist or a scientist? He, he, he certainly lived like an artist, a starving one at that. Uh, he, uh, I, I, I think I, I think that's that's a fair rejoinder because he certainly didn't care about absolute truth in this one respect. Like he he did not have a a Fisher like devotion to one opening. He was he was Catholic in his opening choices. Uh, like every time I played him, and uh, and 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 he is by far. I, I mean, like the like like I look at I look at my MSA records and I look at my pre-MSA, and the two people I played in 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 the chess world are are Albert Char Albert Chow far and away number one, Bill Swyth far and away number two, and the, there's nobody close to those two people. And I, I I haven't played that many games by, like I'm a relatively active amateur, so I I, I played maybe fifteen hundred two thousand rated games. And you know, and I, I think those two people have each over two percent of the games I played have have have, uh, have been against you know each of those two people. That is, I I played over forty games against Albert. I played over forty games against Bill Smythe, I believe. Uh, uh, yeah, it, like uh, so. Yeah, you, you know, he would play the Chagorin defense, and I'm sure he didn't believe. He 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 certainly didn't have a scientific belief that the, that the Chagorin was the best opening, and yet at, at the same time, he, I mean, he cared very much about correct chess. I remember that, that there was a time in my life when I was, you know, I I basically I I vacillated in my career between weak expert and strong expert, and there was there was a time in my life twenty twenty some years ago when for the life of me I could just not 
have a chance of drawing against 2300s with black. You know, forget about winning. I couldn't even draw them. And, and Albert was the one who helped me install a very sound, scientific, open, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, grab the center, play, play E5 in response to D4, play, <laughs> play D5, or, you know, tra or transpose in the Queen's Gambit against, uh, against D4. And, and he, you know, for, you know, it was, it, it, it was lost on me because I, because I was not a, uh, a devoted pupil as he was, but he really improved my game. The one thing I really regret about young people today, they have no idea how strong Albert was in the 1980s. He, this is someone with different opportunities in life. Now, after 1990, I would admit that, that, that the ship had already sailed. But in the 1980s, had he had the right opportunities, he, he easily could have been a grandmaster, easily. Uh, uh, I, I always felt there was something missing in his tactical vision. There was something missing in his end game. But in terms of middle game planning, really, really, and and very, and and GMs have said the same thing. They said, you know, I don't you know, like in the '80s. It was common for GMs to say, "I don't know why Albert is not a grandmaster," uh, be, because he, he really understood chess that deeply. Uh, there's perhaps a good reason for this. Circa 1982 was, was the big tragedy of Albert's life and the tragedy of his mother's life. Uh, his sister was age 15. She had a boyfriend. The boyfriend's parents forbade them to see each other. A rational person might, well, you know, a rational couple in love might have said, uh, ah, you know, we'll elope, you know, we'll, 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 we'll go live somewhere else and we'll come back to the parents in a couple of years. For whatever reason, I guess the same reasons that motivated Romeo and Juliet, they went up to the, uh, to the Lawson YMCA building, on, to the roof of the Lawson YMCA a building on State Street, 10-story building. Uh, held hands and jumped off the building together. I remember seeing Albert at another master challenge, maybe a year or two after he had uh, he had uh, uh, he had adroitly met the young woman. And and this this time Albert is maybe 18 years old. He was there with with uh, with his with his then girlfriend, who was in kabuki makeup of all things and the the desolation and des desperation on alberts I, I i just felt so much for him he was playing he he was trying to win a prize at the master challenge so his so his girlfriend could afford tuition at uic and you know the hole in his heart from having lost his sister, and remember, he was he uh, he had lost his father a couple years before, so he and his mother were just totally devastated. Uh, one thing people don't know about Albert personally was how devoted he was to his mother, and 
and, and how much caring for his mother. I'm looking ahead a few decades now, but uh, his mother died of Alzheimer's. And, you know, in in the last tournament he played in his life was the uh, the Clark Street Capital Invitational Tournament. Albert was going home between rounds to care for his mother. He had left the caregiver there with her, but he was going home between rounds to care. So his last tournament was in 2017. He didn't get to get to play chess in the final few years of his life. People said, where's Albert? That's where he was. He was caring for his mother. Uh, <laughs> okay, that, that's the sad stuff. And, and that's, the, that's the great stuff about Albert. Uh, happier stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, I think go. knowing Albert pretty well personally, uh, myself, I'm not surprised to hear any of those stories, but it's great to have you on the record for people who didn't know them as well as, as you and I did. Yeah, and, 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 and again, this sort of explains why Albert re never realizes potential, okay? Uh, uh, like Fisher, uh, he was not neurotypical, okay? Unlike Fisher, uh, uh, he, uh, you know, and 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 and, and, and him, himself being of, of dual heritage, uh, you, you know, uh, half Asian heritage, half European heritage, uh, he did he he did not have the you know he did he did not have a lot of the unpleasant baggage that Fisher carried with him, and he really was at heart a very good person. And, and, and well, let's be honest, anybody who has spent any time with Albert knows that at times he could be a difficult, indeed maddening person. But, it, you know, that, you know, like there were times when he drove me crazy, like, and some of his family members showed, uh, shared some of the same things with him. And, and it's, it's because, again, he had an artist's impracticality about him. He, he was always in search of perfectionism it, rather than good enough for who it's for. And I, I, I think this, you know, it, it, it had some negative bearing on his personal life. It had some negative bearing on his chess career. And yet, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're also glad that there are people in the world who are like this. Because, you know, if we all went through life saying, ah, it's good enough for who it's for, the world would not be a very interesting place, would it? We, you know, we'd all be a bunch of pragmatists. Uh, so, so we need the Alberts of the world. Hey, I'm here with FIDE master Kevin Buckley. Hi, Pete. Um, yeah, I've known Albert or knew Albert for a very long time, um, dating into the uh, 1970s. And, but my real interaction with him probably started in the uh, late 70s, early 1980s, as I got closer to making master. Um, and, uh, you know, I was starting to work in chess camps some and running into Albert more and more in tournaments. Um, and, and Albert and I had some, uh, a few different interesting times that we crossed paths. Um, Albert and I played a number of games against each other, and of the of the Illinois Masters, you know that that top tier of Masters, um, where I played multiple games against somebody, Albert was one of the few Masters that I had a negative score against. Um, 
Albert and even more so was uh, Andrew Carklin's, but uh, both of them were players that I always struggled against. <clears throat> Albert had a, had a sense that there was a right way to play chess and he, he really liked the classical style. And I remember him telling me once that he thought my King's Indian was ridiculous because he says, he says, just think about it. What you're saying is grab the center so I can attack it. He goes, how absurd is that? Um, so, you know, with, with, uh, that kind of attitude, it was easy to know where Albert was coming from and, uh, and his approach to chess in general. Uh, I also remember that he was very cool under pressure. You know, you'd have Albert being massive time pressure, having to make 20 moves in a minute and a half or some ridiculous thing. And he would continue to record his score in these perfectly made block letters on his score sheet as, uh, as the time would run down and people would be freaking out, you know, especially in the days of analog clocks when the, the flag seemed to be hanging by a thread. And uh, Albert was always just cool and, and would uh, uh, take his time and be very methodical in the way that he did things. But, uh, you know, there are a couple of ways that Albert and I really crossed paths that were of singular importance to me or, or important interactions to me. One is that Albert taught a number of my chess camps, uh, you know, when we had Wiz Chess up at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. He taught there a number of times, and he also taught at St. Olaf, and uh, uh, also taught uh, with me and Josh Manning out at College of DuPage a couple of times. <clears throat> so, um, but what was funny is that, you know, Albert being the, the correct, you know, having this correct view of chess, was always just horrified by the fact that we dedicated one evening of the chess camp to a bug house tournament. And, uh, you know, the other, the other player who was similar in his, in being horrified was uh, Grandmaster Serper. And it was so interesting because as the camp got larger and larger, we had more and more masters there. And, you know, sometimes we had fine gold or, you know, from the area Penkowski. And, you know, there were years that we had six or seven gems there. And Albert was one of the two people who was always just like, oh, how can you guys play this? It's terrible for your chess. And we'd go on and on about it. And then one year, all of a sudden, he started to understand, or as he was watching the games, he started to understand that there was a certain strategy to the game. And he started to ask questions and get a little bit more involved. And then the next year, as he started to ask questions, we actually got him to sit down and play games. And by the third year, he was completely immersed in it. But I don't think he ever wanted to admit it to anybody. <laughs> so it was a guilty pleasure that uh, I'm not sure he ever told many people out, outside of a few chess camps about. But uh, it was just interesting to see him change his perspective over time where he still thought it was terrible, but he did understand that there was a certain strategy to the game. I have to say, I owe you a debt of gratitude there because the camp that Albert came down and, and taught with me, um, we also had a tradition of bug house. And when you first told me via email about the, this bug house story and how Albert didn't like it so much, it, it came as such a shock to me because uh, he was, he played it with us, you know, no questions asked, no qualms, just sat down and <laughs> happily <laughs> chose his yes. partner, you know, and instructed him a little bit about the strategy of the game. Um, yeah. So I had no idea of this, of this backstory and it's great to hear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that I think really got him going was uh, I am Schroer and I am Mannion used to make a fantastic bug house team. And they had this bit where, uh, uh, you know, we would have the, the, the best camper team play them uh, in a final match. 
And what Schroer and Mannion would strive for is to simultaneously mate on both boards. <laughs> and I think that when when that happened the first time, that's really when when it got Chow's attention. It's like, holy cow, you made them both at once. You know, that that kind of took him over the edge. So, but uh, another way that Albert had a big impact on my life is a story that goes back to 1981. We were having a tournament up uh, at the College of Lake County, which had a number of tournaments back then, Tim Just and myself and Wayne Clark, who passed away this past year, and Dennis Grant, a number of other TDs in the area, um, would get together and run a few different tournaments. And one of the more important tournaments we ran for a while was called the Prairie State Invitational that was open only to experts and above. And uh, uh, one year, Albert was up there, and and I had just finished the game with – who was then an expert, he's now a master, a guy named Jack Young, now lives on the East Coast. Uh, And Jack and I had played a very bizarre game. Jack liked to play bizarre games, and he tended to be fairly tactical. And back then, you know, that's that's when I was probably one of my most tactical phases. And so we're out in the, uh, you know, Skittles area outside the main playing room, and we're analyzing. And Albert walks up to the table when he was watching us analyze for a few minutes. And after about five, ten minutes, he says, I'm losing rating points just watching you guys analyze. <laughs> <laughs> and then he looks at me and he says, you, you play Stone Age chess. You play like a caveman. And instantly all of my friends go, that's it. You're the caveman. And that was the beginning of caveman chess. <laughs> that phrase started. He, he coined it. That and and people started calling me the caveman, and and six months later I became master for the first time, and it just kind of stuck with me ever since after that. So, uh, so I claimed it as my own. Um, but uh, Albert was the person who officially named me uh, caveman for the for the first time. So, had a had an impact on me. <clears throat> but another good story about Albert, and. This is funny and sad. I use this as a teaching story when I teach camps. I mean, we, you know, we all go through periods where we either play chess badly or we just do something radically stupid during a game or, or something. And I like to try to get it across to kids to be ready for the fact that it's going to happen to you because it's going to happen to you. And um, you just have to learn how to deal with it and move on and, and move on to the next game. So I tell a story, uh, and, and this will mean a lot, particularly to Chicago area players. Um, in that same six-month period or so uh, that Albert had named me the caveman, there was a tournament where in the first round, I drew Grandmaster Soltis. Uh, I was still an expert at that time. And two rounds later, I was playing John Tomas, who at that point was roughly a 2350. And um, I was playing very aggressively against Tomas as I tended to do at the time and and uh he was playing a modern defense of some sort and i was you know playing fisher-esque with bishop to c4 and h4 h5 and just about everything you can imagine to get a kingside attack and you know tomas offers a, a draw at one point and decided i really didn't want to draw um i typically try to make decisions based on what's on the board but here it was just as much the fact that i really wanted to beat tomas so I, I sat to peace, and the sacrifice was, was sound, and I was breaking through. But somehow the order of moves from what I had anticipated to have happened got kind of turned around. 
And I reached a position where I literally had a mate in one move. Um, and what was, you know, to my mind's eye, you know, I was having chest blindness and I wasn't seeing it. And the reason is that this mating score looked to be defended, but the defending piece was in fact pinned and pinned to the king. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it wasn't defended. And I was sitting, staring at the position, and I had my hands that wrapped around my head, and I was looking and looking and looking. And while I'm analyzing this, you know, for minutes, Albert Chow walks up to the board, and he looks at it for a minute, and he can, of course, obviously see that there's a mate in one. And, you know, I continue to think for a couple minutes, and he kind of looks at me kind of funny for a second. And I look up at him, and I'm thinking, why is he looking at me so funny? And he kind of shrugs his shoulders and walks away. So I continue to look at the position for several more minutes, continue to have chest blindness and not see the mate in one, eventually make another move. And of course, as often happens when you don't follow the logical conclusion of a game, the instant you get off the logical path, your game just falls apart. Right. And yeah. that's what was happening to my game. And Albert walks back up and he sees this bizarre position where I'm suddenly losing, Right. And of course, in his mind, there was no way that I could have missed the mate in one. So Albert assumes that we are now analyzing the game. And he starts talking and reaching out and moving the pieces around. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was just an impossibility that you would not see the mate in one. Yes, and and we both looked at him, both Tomas and I looked at him and said, Albert, what are you doing? We're still playing here. And he goes, oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And we start putting the pieces back. And of course, this made it even worse for me because what it did is it drew everybody's attention. You know, the 200 players in this tournament were all now focused on this game. And of course, everybody in the tournament instantly knew after the game that I had missed the maiden one. Right. (laughs) So it, uh, it was actually one of the more embarrassing situations that occurred to me. But, uh, you know, it was just a, a good instance of, you know, Albert just couldn't accept anything other than what, what was correct, right? It was Right. It had, you had to have found that man. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, in, in both a good way and a bad way, he was a little dogmatic about that, you know, and, and sometimes it served him very well, and every now and then it served him not so well. So, but uh, those are, you know, three of my more important stories with Albert. Albert, like I said, taught in a number of our camps over the years. Uh, he was always very generous with the kids. Um, he could sometimes be stricter than they would like uh, because he really wanted them to play well. But uh, he really cared about people and he, and he worked hard to make sure that they understood the fundamentals of chess. And I think that's what Albert and really anybody who's taught in the camps has, uh, has appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.7seasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis.